Join us, friends. Great Scott Spagai. Do they know what we have in store for them? They will if they tighten up. And don't double dribble. To the Grey Ghost, Spagai? Exactly, old chum. No time to waste. To the Grey Ghost. We have not a minute to spare. It's showtime, friends. All right, all right, all right. It is the Spagai, and it is... Globe trotting with Trey. And we are not wishing Cotton was a monkey, but we know that there are people that are. So, Trey, today we have a special guest. Tell us. Yes, Bob Guy, I just recently stopped at the Tennessee-Mississippi state line and filmed some Buford Husser locations. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, exploring this guy's story and the story that's told and the story that is probably reality. The real uh, story. The real story. I'm doing so, the... So for the people that are wickwoman. You watched a movie, that's the Wickwam version, and we're going to get down to the non-Wickwam version. Is that what you're saying? Well, I am giving this story the Elvis Presley treatment, and I found a guy that I've been following for a while on Facebook. His name is Mike uh, Elam, and he has written a book called Buford Pusser, The Other Story. And um, Mike's Facebook page is, you need to follow him on Facebook. It's pretty interesting because he shares a lot of stories through the last 15 years of research that he has done, uh, interviewing people that are part of Buford Puzzler's life and people that knew people that he killed and that ran um, beer joints in the area there that uh, the uh, Buford Puzzler story takes place. So before I we, Mike to be a guest today, Spaga. Okay, before we bring Mike in, where he, where can people get his book and what is it called? Yeah, it's called uh, Buford Puster, The Other Story, and you can get it on Amazon. Okay. I'm sure we'll include the link to the description of this uh, video. Absolutely. So let's bring Mike in. And friends, make sure that you go to Amazon and grab that book. Mm-hmm. And let's get Mike in. Hello, Mike. How are you? I am doing well. It's my so thanks for having me here. No, thank you for uh, being with us. And you know, part of what Trey and I try to do, and of course, we're doing it in with the Elvis story, is trying to set the record straight on a lot of things that are mythological stories. And there's a lot of them in the Elvis world, and we are finding that there are a lot of them in the Buford Pusser world as well, including a movie. So, uh, (laughs) uh, sadly, (laughs) that's that's the reality. Most people watch that movie and believe that that was the Buford Pusser story. And and you were uh, saying some things contrary to that. So okay. tell us about that. Well, I became interested in this story some time ago. Uh, I was in law enforcement at a uh, young age, about the time that Buford was getting out of uh, law enforcement, and the movies were coming along. And, uh, of course, like everyone else, I was hooked on the story. You know, he was a hero to me. And so much so that I wanted to learn more about uh, the real Buford. So I started researching him. And, uh, you know, over a period of time, you see some things that are negative. And uh, people started contacting me on, you know, with uh, the advent of Al Gore's Internet. And... uh, (laughs) Uh, and you know, we'd get into conversations. I met a lot of people that, uh, live their own part of, uh, that story. And I found out it just simply wasn't true. In my experience and Trey, I'm, I'm not trying to step on you. I want you to jump in here, but my experience, Mike was 
when I went down to Adamsville in that area and I talked to locals, it was almost a 50-50 split. You got 50% of the people thought he was a hero and 50 completely hated him and thought he was a crook. And uh, did you experience that, Trey? I have experienced that too. And I know you have probably in a big way, Mike. Oh, yeah. I have. It's it's amazing the separation of uh, these two groups down there. It's, uh, you know, like you say, some believe he's a true hero and some will tell you stories that will just uh, set you back. And in, when you research them, you find out that uh, a lot of those stories are actually true. You know, that uh, he wasn't quite the hero that the movies made him out to be. So, Mike, the other day, of course, I called you from the location of the, of the Shamrock Motel, where in 1966, I believe February the 1st, 66, uh, Buford Pusser shot and killed the owner, Louise Hathcock. And Mike gave me some nice information, Billy. I actually walked out in the woods, and Mike, I did find the foundation, like you told me. And I was able to stand in the restaurant area and then to the right where room where the office and room one and two would have been. Right. Were you able to discern the doorways and all that? Because there was... From my memory, there was a doorway between her her room and the and the back of the restaurant or the office area. Like there was a doorway, you didn't have to go out and go around; you could go through. Right. You know, if you're there in the uh, motel office, there was a little registration desk, and right behind that, there was a hallway that went to room number one, which Louise used as a uh, uh, personal living quarters when she was working the motel, uh, and there was a wall behind the uh, registration desk and behind that wall was a little uh, like living room kitchenette area, uh, you know, where they could watch TV or uh, fix something to eat, so on and so forth. Were you able to discern that any tray or was the grass too high? The grass was just so high, but I was, I was standing on the, the foundation. I was standing on, you know, cement out there. That's cool. And that thing is almost at the border, right? It's, well, like, actually, it is the border. Actually, right. the motel sits in Tennessee, and mm-hmm. about 30 feet away to the south of it is where the restaurant sat, and it was in Mississippi. And there was crazy? a driveway right there between the two. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, so tell, uh, you know, I asked you a question, uh, Mike, when you start, because you were a fan of, of Buford Pusser to start off. Yes. What was that key moment where it made you question the story? Two things that came up at about the same time. One of them was uh, the ambush photos showing Buford's car that was shot up. The other that really intrigued me was uh, Louise Hathcock's autopsy report. Uh, It showed some surprising things that I really didn't think I would see. And it's because the story is, and you can take it away, Mike, I believe the story is that they go to room one, go to her living he- uh, space there, room one, and she closes a door, or, or the door cannot close because there's like clothes hanging on it, and she pulls a gun out of her gown and shoots him. Well, let's go back just a little ways. The Vogels were from uh, a couple from Illinois. They were traveling up from the Gulf, decided to stay there because it looked like a nice place, and indeed it was kind of state of the art for its time. Uh, You know, it was built in uh, 1957, probably finished in 1958. Anyway, they uh, stopped, they checked in, they had uh, 
it was during the winter and uh, they had a quite a snowstorm going on, ice storm, and didn't want to drive any further back home to Illinois. So they stopped there, they got a room, they uh, went to the restaurant on the Mississippi side of the border, had uh, a dinner, uh, went back to the room, and uh, they felt like they had been drugged. The next morning when they woke up, uh, it was a situation where her purse was gone, $125 in the purse, which was quite a amount of money at that time, uh, probably be about a thousand in today's dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, her rosary was missing. And so they went up to the office to report it to Louise. They said Louise was drunk and uh, threatened to kill them. <laughs> and uh, so they left, went to the phone booth that was right outside and called the uh, sheriff's office. Buford, his chief deputy, Jim Moffitt, and another deputy, Petey Plunk, all came to the state line. Uh, they walked in. Uh, told Louise that they had two search warrants, uh, one for stolen property and one for illegal alcohol. And she knew she was going to be arrested. And the story goes that she said, well, you've heard if you'll come on back to my living quarters, I'll tell you what's going on here at the state line, which basically doesn't make sense because she was the state line. Uh, W.O. Hathcock that had operated the uh, plantation club right across the highway in, on the Mississippi side, uh, he'd been out of business since 64. Uh, Toehead White, who many be, believe that uh, Louise was married to at that time, uh, he was in prison. And of course, Jack, her first husband, was dead. And uh, so Buford uh, went into the room with her. Jim Moffat followed into the hallway. Uh, the door closed and there was some laundry uh, dry cleaning that was hanging on the doorknob, which didn't allow the door to close all the way. Uh, two people were in that uh, kitchenette living room area and they couldn't see anything, but they could hear. Uh, you know, they said that uh, first they heard Louise begging for her life and then they heard shots fired from Buford's 41 Magnum, which uh, really took them by surprise. A little bit later, they heard a single shot from her gun. Well, Buford's story was just the opposite, that she fired at him, cursed him, fired at him, missed the bullet, he said, whizzed by his head, uh, went through the window, and uh, the projectile ended up in the awning support post outside. Uh, he claimed that she aimed at him again, but the hammer fell on a bad round. And that gave him time to pull his gun and uh, shoot. Uh, he said the uh, first shot nipped her in the shoulder. The second shot uh, was to her torso, one that he claimed blew her heart out. And the third one was uh, to her head as she lay on the floor. And uh, so when you take what these two individuals say and compare it to Buford's story, they don't add up, but you know, just like right up here, uh, I've got a page of the uh, autopsy report that shows that uh, the shot to her shoulder was from the posterior side of the body. So she was shot. Uh, went in back here, exited out up here. 
The second shot was right below her uh, left shoulder blade and to the uh, left of it just a little bit, went diagonally across her body and exited out under her right breast. And like I said, the third shot was uh, as she lay there on the floor, it uh, uh, went into her jawline on the left side, exited out the back of her skull and took some of her teeth through and uh, embedded them in the carpet. Wow. She died right there. So are you saying that the first two shots you were believed were in her back and then maybe she fell and he shot her on the floor? Yes. Okay. So shot her in the face on the floor. So she fell on her back. Right. Okay. And he didn't get uh, shot in this particular incident at all. Pardon? Did he get shot at all? Did She didn't hit him at all. No. Okay. It went through the window uh, and lodged in a uh, awning post outside. Uh, one of the things that bothered me about that was that uh, it was at an upward angle. Uh, the trajectory. Down. And like he was kneeling beside her, possibly just picked up a gun that she had on her because she carried one, uh, aimed through the window and shot it without really thinking about the trajectory going up. And uh, he that was fired her gun to try to make it look like she fired the gun. Correct. Right. And uh, because you said that that one was later, much later. Yes. You're saying that it wasn't boom, 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 boom. It was boom, boom, boom. Period of time. Boom. Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from uh, the appearance of things, uh, the autopsy report also said that she had bruising on her wrist, which was kind of unusual. And uh, you tie that into the rest of the story. And it could be that uh, Buford possibly was holding her by the wrist while she was begging for her life. And, uh, you know, when she broke free, I think she was trying to get out in the hallway where Jim Moffat was. And uh, that's the one reason that the uh, uh, one round caught her in uh, a diagonal position. So, so, and, and I'm sorry to step on you, Trey, but my question would be at this point, um, when did those deputies give that testimony that they heard her begging for her life after Buford was dead or before Buford was dead? <laughs> well, the, de the uh, deputies didn't give that. Okay. The two men that were in the uh, living area. Oh, okay. Oh, so there was other people there other than the two dead. Right. I did not catch that. Okay. One of them was Howard Carroll. Uh, he worked well there at the Shamrock. Uh, he was kind of like a runner. Somebody would come up, want to uh, purchase uh, alcohol. He was the one that would go get it, take it to their car, uh, get the money, so on. Mm -hmm. uh, the other gentleman, uh, I have agreed not to reveal his name. Uh, he doesn't want his family involved in uh, any of this because there's still a lot of uh, hard feelings and a certain amount of hostility uh, about these things. But, uh, you know, they heard her uh, begging. I'm sure that Jim Moffitt heard her begging. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, after the shooting, Jim went home and told his wife and his oldest adult son that uh, what had happened and said, if anything ever happens to me, you don't need to look any further than Buford Pusser. Wow. Yeah. That's telling, right? And, 
I got that. I spent four days with uh, Jim's son and, uh, you know, going through a lot of this and getting names and locations and so on years ago. And uh, O'Neill told me that, uh, yeah, he was on leave from uh, the military and his dad came home and, and just told him, said, anything happens to me, you need to look no further than Buford Pusser. Do you have a question, Trey? I've, I've got a question. Uh, Mike, uh, t- tell Spy Guy, right next door, though, right was uh, the nephew, right? Um, well, that was actually on Jack's, her husband's death. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's that what was I was going to get at. My question was going to be, that hotel had a reputation for sure. those kinds of things, for robbing people that were coming to stay there and that kind of stuff already. Well, I wouldn't say robbing. Uh, necessarily, there were some uh, some reports of uh, robbery, but they weren't many. Uh, the thing that they were noted for was the razzle game. Uh, people, they had big signs up, you know, for a 49 cent breakfast, ham and eggs, all this and that. People would stop there for breakfast. They had runners out there in the parking lot that would uh, check for out-of-state cars pulling in. And because 45, Highway 45 was a main artery between the Gulf Coast and uh, like Illinois. So you had lots of tourists coming in from out of state and the runners would spot a car. They would go in, uh, tell their cohort that was in the uh, restaurant. This was on the Mississippi side uh, that, well, this couple is from Illinois. So when that couple would finish eating, uh, they would go up to pay their tab and uh gentleman there would say you know uh you have a chance to win your breakfast for free and you know most people would want to try that and it was a game where you know you have uh cups with dice in it charred up on the wall and the object is to get to uh the number 29 when you roll these dice they'd count the dots it's next to impossible to actually do that but you know people it was first run was going to be free. Oh, you got close. You almost made it. But, you know, it's going to cost you a dollar to play again. Well, you know, they'd roll and then they'd lose again and then they would up the uh, prize. Well, if you get a to uh, up to 29, uh, not only will you get your breakfast free, but you'll get, you know, this watch. And they would just keep doing that until they just milk people out of all their money. Wow. <laughs> and you called it the razzle? The razzle-dazzle game. Oh, the razzle-dazzle, okay. Yeah. And, you know, you still see it sometimes at, like, county fairs or uh, so on. It's just a form of gambling. Uh, and at one time, the uh, governor of Mississippi was so concerned about it that they ran newspaper ads not to gamble at the Shamrock, and they stationed uh, – a uh, an officer out there 24 hours a day uh, for several days just to discourage people from using the uh, shamrock as a, a wow. place to dine or stay. Amazing, quite yeah. quite a reputation. You know, I read Mike. After, yeah, Buford <laughs> calling you right there. I uh, I read that Buford Pusser would park across the street up a little ways at the White Iris. And I guess watch the shamrock. Is yes. There any, any truth to that? That is okay. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, 
but the thing that you've got to understand is that Louise was paying uh, Buford uh, to look the other way. Uh, it could be as much as $1,500 a month that uh, she was paying. Uh, I had Louise's niece tell me at one time that uh, one month she even paid $2,500 because that's what Buford demanded. So that was kind of uh, an unusual thing. He, uh, uh, there was only one time that he ever had anything to do with the uh, Shamrock as far as rating it or anything. That was in December, uh, about three, four months after he was elected sheriff and uh, been told that uh, Rex Armistead uh, Cleeton Wilbanks, several of them were trying to clean up the state line. Uh, Armistead was with the state and uh, Wilbanks was the sheriff of Alcorn County. And so they called Buford and said, well, we're going to have an intelligence meeting up at the uh, TBI office in uh, Jackson. So they all go up there because they know that Buford's uh, uh, getting paid off. And uh, he gets up there and uh, it's not an intelligence meeting where they're going to share information. They got him up there because they wanted to raid the shamrock. And they had somebody right by his side the entire time that he was there. Uh, you know, couldn't get to a telephone to call down and warn Louise. So when they got down there to the uh, uh, state line, they arrested four men uh, on charges that didn't stick. And then, uh, of course they arrested Louise because they found alcohol there. And it was, uh, Buford that had to make the arrest because it was on the Tennessee side of the border. So that's the only time he, uh, actually, uh, was involved in a raid at the Shamrock. Wow. I know, I know I had read where he met with her there at that restaurant, I guess, once he took over, and uh, she, you know, tried to pay him off like 500 or a thousand and he like turned her down. And that's the story they say is that's where they became enemies at. But uh, as you just said, Mike, I mean, if he's making 2,500 a month, uh, he must have been. A, he, uh, he, he, he liked the price at some point. Oh, yeah. Typically, it was 1,500. Uh, Which was a lot that of wasn't, money back then. Oh, a yeah. Yeah. Uh, a great deal. And, uh, you know, that wasn't the only place he was doing it because I interviewed uh, uh, Betty G or Betty Sparks that had the uh, anchor club. She said that she was paying him $500 a month and it was the best money she ever spent. She said, you know, I could pay Buford that amount. Uh, I could sell hard liquor. Uh, McNary County was only had beer that was legal. But she said if I paid him, uh, he'd let me sell hard liquor, uh, you know. It was wide open down here. I could be open on Sundays when others were closed, uh, stay open late. And he would warn me if uh, the state had any raids planned for my location. Um, you know, so you go down the list. There, there were a number of people that I interviewed that all agreed that they uh, paid Buford. And the thing we got to understand also, in contrast with the movie, the movie portrayed all these people as being a syndicate and when, what 
everyone needs to know is they were actually competitors. Uh, they didn't really get along that well. And if uh, one had the opportunity, he would burn a competitor out just to up his uh, market share. Uh, a lot of places disappeared like that, but what can you say? You, you know, you brought up the movie. Billy and I like to talk about that, this crazy Elvis movie that they just made, how it's, we're being nice saying it's 80% not true. <laughs> Probably 95% not true in all reality. What, what would you say about the Walking Tall movie? Uh, the Walking Tall movie, I would give it uh, maybe 90%. There was some truth in it. I mean, Buford was sheriff of uh, McNary County. It did happen in uh, Tennessee. Uh, and his wife got killed. Mm -hmm. uh, Let's talk those about are all that. facts. Let's it's all the material around it that is questionable. All the story that yeah. they created was a little questionable, right? And it made Buford the real hero. But they did. And what about walking around with the, um, what was it? The was he, was he famous for walking around with a oh, big stick? Yeah. Big stick. Yeah, that, uh, that's not true, right? The only time that he used a stick at all was um, he was going to take down some moonshiners that wouldn't pay. And uh, there were several of them. So he uh, just reached over and grabbed a fence post and used that as a weapon. And uh, But as far as carrying one around every day, like it showed in the movie, didn't happen. Wow. That was a uh, Hollywood prop. So what do you believe happened with his wife being killed? Do you think that was a hit like he is portrayed or was he involved? I spoke with several people concerning that, that uh, played their own part in that story. Uh, LaVon Plunk, Deputy P.D. Plunk's wife and Pauline were best friends. Uh, when I spoke with her, she said that that night she had taken uh, LaVon home or Pauline home uh, to get some personal belongings, pick up the kids, and she was going to uh, drive them away. Uh, Buford and Pauline had already been separated. He was abusive to her. Uh, the problem was that uh, that night there were several events that happened just prior. You had two young boys, Dennis Hathcock, uh, which was a nephew to Jack and Louise Hathcock and his friend, Johnny Harrison. They, for lack of anything better to do in uh, McNary County at that time, some nights they'd go out and follow Buford around just for the fun of it. Lots of kids would. Uh, that particular night, they happened to follow him for a while. Uh, they knew he liked to meet a, some of his girlfriends at uh, a state maintenance uh, road department maintenance uh, lot in Eastview. Uh, they got there and uh, they waited, hid their motorcycle and waited. And sure enough, Buford pulls in, backs into a certain spot. And uh, they're up on a pile of chat that uh, where they've got a good vantage point. And uh, about that time, one of Buford's girlfriends shows up. They get into a little bit of an argument. And um, he tells her she needs to get out of there. Well, she leaves, he leaves, and he turns right around and comes back. Parks back in the same spot. And a few minutes later, a car, a uh, late model 
Chevy Biscayne uh, came up, pulled in. Buford got out of the, his car. The driver of the Biscayne got out, uh, opened their trunks, and there was a gun exchange. And uh, then Buford drives off. Well, they get on their motorcycle. They can't keep up with him, but they suspect they know where he's going. So they go uh, to this girlfriend's uh, friend's house. Uh, I'll just call her Big Star in order not to reveal her actual name. But uh, she lived about two doors down from Buford's girlfriend, and they were friends. And uh, the boys followed uh, Buford to that point, uh, got up on a hill a little bit across the highway so that they could see everything. And uh, Buford was going around knocking on Big Star's doors on the windows, trying to find access to get in where his girlfriend was. And finally, after... 10 minutes or so, well, the front door opens and this girlfriend comes out, runs across uh, toward her house. Uh, Buford chases her, uh, catches her at one point, but she breaks free, gets into her own house and won't open the door again. Buford at that point leaves and goes to a service station in Selmer. He gets on the phone, uh, makes a call, and then he heads to Adamsville. And the boys think it's all over. Uh, you know, that's all we're going to see tonight. And so they go home. Uh, got a picture here where two of them are Dennis and Johnny at the uh, scene the next morning. But uh, at any rate, uh, Johnny calls uh, Dennis you know, along about 6, 6.30 in the morning and said, hey, Pauline was killed in an ambush uh, that was meant for Buford. Buford's been wounded. And Dennis asked him where it is. And he said, well, it's on New Hope Road. So Dennis on a motorcycle, rides over and comes out to New Hope Road. And he's not sure if he needs to go left or right. So he decided to go right back down toward the state line. And uh, he gets to a little bridge just about uh, seven-tenths of a mile from where the Methodist Church is. And uh, R.C. Matlock, a constable, is uh, there, parked uh, his car across the road. And when Dennis gets there, uh, you know, he tells Dennis, you got to leave. This is a crime scene. And, uh, you know, he and Dennis exchange conversations for just a minute. And then Dennis leaves. He rides down toward the state line, which is about three miles away. Uh, but he only gets about two miles down when he sees all these shell casings in the road and he stops and gets off his motorcycle. He looks at the shell casings, broken glass. And, uh, the road had just been freshly maintained. I mean, a day or so before, uh, you know how they would put oil down and chat on top of it. So on. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where, uh, he knew what he was looking at. He looks over in the ditch and he sees a piece of uh, uh, scalp with blonde hair and blood. So he turns around, goes back to the uh, bridge where Matlock is and says, you're in the wrong place. It happened about two miles down the highway or the New Hope here. So uh, Matlock continues to tell him, well, you need to get out of here. Law enforcement's on their way, so on and so forth. Well, about that time, they pull up, and Dennis just kind of hangs around. 
uh, Warren Jones from the TBI looks at everything, decides that uh, there's not much that happened at that bridge. And uh, so he hears Dennis telling somebody else about what he's found down the road. So uh, being an investigator, you know, he naturally asked Dennis, well, where is this place? He's, uh, intersection of uh, uh, Davis Yancey Road and New Hope Road. So they go down there, they find shell casings, they find the uh, glass and the uh, piece of scalp. And, uh, you know, so they start processing that as a uh, crime scene. Uh, so that was about a mile okay. from the uh, state line area. And so the story is that Buford uh, would tell is that, uh, or others would tell is that Buford drove on down to the state line and uh, uh, stopped at Dahmer White's store where he met Albert Kitty. And allegedly, and I don't know this to be fact, he held out a handful of Pauline's brains that had her ring in it and said, mumbled something like, look what I've done, they've done, you know, it was he was incoherent. And he told uh, Albert Kitty something that uh, Albert would never repeat. Uh, at any rate, he drove on down the highway a little ways, pulled over, and was just sitting there when uh, Mamie Elam, no relation, uh, pulled up, saw him in trouble, thought he was a Tennessee trooper. And uh, so she went to the house uh, next door to uh, call for help. Well, when sirens started coming up from Corinth in Mississippi, Buford took off and headed north and made it as far as Eastview. He pulls over at uh, Alan McCoy's store, and that's where they found him. Uh, of course, Pauline was dead. He'd been shot in the chin. And that's another misnomer of the movie. They showed him having his jaw shot and said it was blown away. And it actually is a wound that goes down his uh, jawline, but it uh, the damage was to his chin. And so uh, uh, he was transported to the uh, hospital, Aaron Selmer. They stabilized him and sent him on to Miss, uh, Memphis to the Baptist Hospital there where he was treated, stayed 18 days. And hold your thought, Billy. I filmed that, Mike. You you know, you told me where to go the other day. I found the church. I went down that road and it was curvy. So this happened at nighttime, as we discussed earlier. Uh, on yeah, the phone. 445 in the morning. Yeah, there's no way without seeing, uh, without lights out there. How no, he claimed, he claimed that uh, uh, when they went past the church that morning, uh, the story he would tell is that they fell in behind him and uh, without the use of their headlights, caught up with him at that bridge. And uh, that's where the first two shots were fired. That's one place where he claimed Pauline was hit. Uh, and like I say, you've been down that road seven tenths of a mile. Mm -hmm. uh, he went by at 50 miles an hour. Uh, and you have to question how a Cadillac could take off from behind that church, uh, catch up with him in seven tenths of a mile on a crooked, curvy road that, uh, and without the use of their headlights. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. We, uh, 
we tried a reconstruction of that and it just didn't work. I mean, uh, there's a long straight stretch before you get to that bridge. Mm-hmm. I was driving the car that represented Buford's. We had a Cadillac that was parked behind that church. Now we did it at 1030 in the morning where our vision was good. And, uh, you know, uh, by the time that I got to the bridge, uh, the Cadillac was still about 200 yards behind me. So, uh, and again, that's at 1030 in the morning. So I don't think there's any way that it happened as Buford claimed. So, well, my question would be, you mentioned that the uh, bullet cases were there and you also mentioned the piece of her scalp was there. Right. The piece of someone's scalp doesn't usually come towards the bullets. So it'd make me think that the shot came from inside the car. Uh, it could have. It could have been on the the shooter could have been on the outside of the car on the driver's side. Uh, because if you look at the photos on my uh gonna ask, are there crime scene photos of the distance that the scout piece and the shells are apart and that kind of thing? Well, what I have is photos of the car. Okay. And for instance, you will see where her head leaned on the uh, uh, passenger's door. And you'll have blood going down two sides and a void where her head would have been. You know, there's no blood on that void. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but from there, he claimed that uh, when they started shooting, he accelerated, went, drove 2.1 miles on down the road to uh, Yancey, or da- uh, Davis Yancey and New Hope Roads where they intersect and uh, that he stopped to check on Pauline and that he uh, opened the door to get out, had one foot out, the uh, Cadillac returned, uh, stopped right beside him and shot another 12 to 15 rounds. And he claimed that she was hitting the head again uh, and that he was hitting the chin. He fell to the floorboard. Uh, at some point during all this, he claimed he uh, reached out and grabbed the gun, which tells you they had to really be close for him to reach out and grab the barrel of the gun. Uh, and they were a terrible shot. If they only shot him one time out of 15 or 12, but shot right. her in the head and on the other side, none of that makes sense. It doesn't. Uh, there were two bullet holes according to uh, Steve Watson, who was the deputy director of the TBI at the time, while they could still release some information, but you'll see a photograph of uh, the car. And there were uh, two bullet holes in the door post. And the the McLeese letter says that they were separate rounds. Now, if you, ever thought about this, and I don't know how much you've studied uh, Buford, uh, whenever he was involved in a shooting, everybody got shot in the head. Uh, Louise was shot in the head while she lay on the floor. Uh, Pauline was shot in the head. Uh, Russ Hamilton was shot in the head. And uh, Buford was shot in the face uh, multiple times. And, you know, it just seemed to be kind of a, to me, seemed to be kind of a trademark. Mm -hmm. Uh, At any rate, uh, you know, they also found a uh, matchbook cover from Hernando's hideaway in Memphis. Mm -hmm. And that was a place where that uh, Buford would often go. 
But now Buford claimed that neither he nor Pauline got out of the uh, car, which left me with uh, a couple of questions. One, since that road had been uh, maintained just a day or so before, how did that matchbook cover get out there? And secondly, the blood evidence that was on the outside of the car, there was blood spatter uh, on the hood, the windshield, the uh, grill or front bumper uh, going all the way to the back of the car. And here again, Buford claimed that neither he nor Pauline ever got out. So, you know, I can't explain the uh, blood spatter on the outside. And uh, I don't know how much you know about blood spatter whenever... Uh, you have that, uh, it leaves a tail and uh, tells you which direction the shots came from. So uh, uh, somebody was outside the car when they got shot. Hmm. But how would her blood be outside, though? Or, or is there a potential third victim that just disappeared? Uh, now, that I can't say because... Uh, uh, you know, there's no evidence that there was a another victim. Uh, one thought could be is that uh, at some point, and not necessarily at that site, that Pauline was out of the car and uh, was shot and then placed back in the car. And then got shot in the car, and that's what made the, the splatter around the, where you're saying that the spot around the back of her head was there. Yeah. Uh, that makes more sense that she was shot outside the car, and that would explain the bullet shells and the, a piece of her head out there. Well, and that so explains the staging. And what I haven't mentioned yet was the location of the shell casings. Mm -hmm. Now you have two cars side by side, uh, probably three to five feet apart. Now, Buford said the uh, shooter Thank was sitting. What that means, Mike, is we've got three minutes left. Okay. Can we do part two? Are you able to do part two? Sure. Okay, Trey. I'm good. You good. Yeah. Okay. This is fascinating. so fascinating. <laughs> I don't want to cut it off, but uh, we've got three minutes left. So l stay with your thought right there. Let's finish that. Let's stop, and then we'll go to part two if that's all right. All right. All right. And I'm sorry to step on your thought. It's just we at 42 minutes we always say there's three right. minutes left, just so we can wrap up. So back to, to it, Mike, you, you were saying about the bullets. The well, if you're, um, Buford said the uh, gunman was sitting in the front passenger seat of the Cadillac. Uh, and the cars are that close. You're shooting a carbine, M1, 30 caliber. Uh, it's ejecting the shells. I would have thought that most of the shells would be found between the two cars. Yes. Some may have entered into Buford's car as they were being, the casings as they were being ejected. Some would have uh, possibly even been in the shooter's car. And they should have been. Uh, I would say they would have been in the shooter's car, depending on how far the gun was out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, ironically, they were found all the way on the other side uh, of the uh, Cadillac on the driver's side. And they kind of trailed uh, back behind where Buford described the Cadillac as sitting. So that made no sense. Uh, basically those, the photographs of, uh, the car, the rounds that hit it, uh, you look at, try to figure out the trajectories and none of it made sense. 
according to the way that Buford told it. Fascinating, right, Billy? There's a, there's a lot of inconsistencies in this whole story. So clearly what Buford told is not true. We just don't know what the truth is. Yeah. Well, we're getting closer. <laughs> That's good. It sounds uh, like you really studied this. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, recently we found a gun that may be the one that was used in uh, the ambush. And uh, that's a long story. And so but you mentioned in the doorpost, you mentioned two different bullets. Did you mean two different calibers or you mean two different shots? No, same, same caliber, but there's two holes in the doorpost. I guess the important thing there is when you realize that uh, if this was staged, they were trying to make it look like Buford was the uh, target because that doorpost would have been right behind his head. Right. So they made it look like they were shooting at his head. So you mean the driver's side doorpost, what we call the B pillar. Yeah. Correct. Interesting. So what, so the caliber, you're saying a 30, uh, 30 carbine. 30 caliber M1 carbine. Okay. M1. Okay. So that would be a rifle, which it would be, Um, it's hard to shoot from a, with a rifle from a car. Yeah. The, the whole scenario doesn't make sense. Why do a rolling ambush yeah why not just uh because uh, has some range get away from him and shoot yeah you know well imagine if you wanted to uh, get him you could have uh, stationed somebody outside his home and uh, a sniping situation that was uh more controlled yeah and uh, that, that would have been, been suitable for that as well Yeah, there would have been a lot of, a lot more effective ways to do it than a rolling ambush yeah All right, Mike, we are going to uh, cut today off. Thank you, friends, for watching. And we will come back shortly with Mike. Thank you, Mike. We will see you shortly, my friend. Stay tuned. All right, thank you. All right, yes, sir. Trey, tell them about the the book where they can get it. Yeah, make sure to go to Amazon and search Buford Pusser, The Other Story by Mike Elam, E-L-A-M. And uh, make sure you uh, purchase Mike's book because as you just, you've 45 minutes has been fascinating. So just imagine what's in that book. It went by just like that. Yeah. So uh, friends, we will have part two with Mike Elam and the rest of this story. If we can even tell it in, in all in part two next yeah. week, y'all make sure you come and listen.